Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, writer, authoritative voice around New Hampshire and beyond, Alicia Preston. Well, I guess we have to return to our regular segment this week in Insurrection. It's really hard to keep up with the emerging news about all of the things going on during that critical period when a cabal of MAGA Trumpists, what what do you even call these people, decided to, you know, overthrow the U.S. government. It's come to light that Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was actively agitating for the overthrow of the U.S. government. We have a federal judge ruling that Donald Trump, and I'm quoting here, more likely than not, uh, committed crimes and attempted to illegally obstruct Congress. It turns out that Ted Cruz had more of a role than we knew. And as we were getting on the air right now, there's some new breaking news. Alicia, you were you were beginning to describe it to me, and it was like, all right, let's let's just do this on the air. What's the latest in this week in insurrection? Well, well, this is just breaking as we're speaking, and the headline on Politico right now is Trump calls on Putin to release dirt on Hunter Biden. Uh, it was with a right wing show. He gave an interview <laughs> and it's not I know it's funny, but it's not funny. Right. All at the same time. Look, I think Hunter Biden is a shady dude to begin with, but I don't know what we're calling on Putin for anything for other than getting out of Ukraine. That should be the only thing anyone's calling on Putin for right now. I think it's odd to say the very least that the former president of the United States of America is calling on Russia, who's currently invading a sovereign nation to get dirt on his political opponent's kid. I think it's it's that's some Russian stuff right there, I guess. I I will. I do want to return to the main stories in this week in insurrection. But I do want to comment on that for just a second. I think this Hunter Biden story is pretty interesting from the standpoint of it, it, it highlights a real dilemma in, in the modern news world, which is on the one hand, and this has come up a lot in, in reporting in the last couple of weeks, because, you know, there was a new New York Times story that prosecutors are really honing in on his federal taxes, and that kind of set off another right-wing media cycle, where it was like, see, Hunter Biden really was shady the whole time. And I have to admit, this is, this is a little bit of a dilemma, and I, I'm not sure that I've quite figured out the right thing to do about it, because... On the one hand, it is clear that Hunter Biden did things he should not have done. I mean, it's true. He, he, he was a drug addict. This is well known. You know, he was engaging in activities he shouldn't have done, but he shouldn't have been on the board of Burisma. We know that, um, you know, he sent emails to a business partner, probably inflating what he could do arrange in terms of giving people FaceTime with his father. That wasn't great. Of course, that's not like particularly shocking. Like there's a long history in American politics of sons and daughters taking advantage of their parents' position and and trying to aggrandize themselves and make a little money. All right, uh, fine. But I guess where it really begins to fall apart is that there was such, there was so much thirst on the Republican side to make this story a thing. And it was such a shady story from the get-go. It literally involved a blind 
computer repair person in Delaware who got a laptop that he thought maybe belonged to Hunter Biden because it had a Bo Biden Foundation sticker on it and had a bunch of stuff on it that who knows where it came from. And it made its way to Rudy Giuliani and then even the New York Post any of it. And so I think you really are left with this whole story of like, okay, on the left, Democrats, let's just let's just concede, yeah, Hunter Biden was doing some stuff that he shouldn't have done. But on the other hand, how can the media give in to what's an obvious attempt to muddy the waters and create a both sidesism and create a story in the run-up to the election that could put Donald Trump back in office. How do you give into what is clearly a Republican communications operation? I don't think that there's a way through that. And it just connects back to me, Alicia, to what you just read out. Donald Trump is still doing the same stuff. He's literally asking Vladimir Putin to once again intervene on his behalf in American elections. Like how, how, Wait a second, Matt Robeson, you've been around the block a dozen times or more to to question whether or not the lamestream media has a conscience or principles or a set of values that might apply to actually look at the news there pretending to report before they pretend to report and simply give in to the Republican uh, effort to discredit Biden um, is naive. Um, you, you, you said four Wait, times. Wait, I don't get it. What, what, well, okay, you said four times in your rant, how can the media simply give in to this Republican effort that isn't newsworthy? And the answer is because the media wants to create a conflict even if there is no real conflict yeah, there. Yeah, but that's backwards. They didn't. That That's what they're being criticized for but the they, fact they, they retro- they, retrospectively that they didn't push this story more and they're being accused of censorship. And I'm saying, but they have a point because if they had blown up the story, then they would have been falling into the Republican trap. They would have been falling into a very obvious trap that was very likely a Republican disinformation campaign. So I'm kind of defending the media on this one. Yeah, but we're not making this a bigger story in October 2020. I guess I disagree with you because I I saw it in the media. I read it in the media. I followed it in the media. I followed the Republican attempt to do it. So I guess I disagree that they that they didn't take up the story and and go for it. But irrespective, look, let's the point of where we started in this week in insurrection is that the former president of the United States, the twice um, twice impeached, never convicted president of the United States, the guy who fomented the insurrection on January 6th and has thus far eluded capture, called a war criminal, Vladimir Putin, who as Trump is making his request to reinvigorate the non-story about Hunter Biden is wreaking havoc, destruction, and chaos uh, on the Ukraine um, in 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 a in a, in blatant aggression. And this is the guy Trump is calling. I guess they have a personal relationship. 
um, that Trump thought uh, could work. I mean, look, if nothing else works, at least Putin has something on Biden and, and he'll he'll talk about it. I mean, it is beyond words to think about how that how did that happen? Did Trump does Trump have Vladimir Putin's cell phone and he calls him up and says, Vladimir, I need your help. Uh, just do me a favor, okay? Uh, they're coming at me from all sides. I need you. I, I, I need something on, on the Hunter Biden thing. I know you got some dirt on him. Uh, come on, give me, give me a hand here. I just need a little help. And, and what does is, what is Putin say back to Donald Trump? Oh, Trumpelinski. The time for help for you is way past. We cannot help you. We're busy. We're busy. I'm bombing people. I'm trying to kill Ukrainians. I don't have time for help to you. I mean, I mean, how does this conversation even what demented, what demented part of what's left of Vlad, of Donald Trump's brain calls Vladimir Putin for help while the bombing of Ukraine is going on? I I have often been rendered speechless by the antics of Donald Trump. This one, this is pretty, this is pretty high up there in the annals of crazy. I Alicia, agree. You look like you want I to mean, jump in. I, you know, look, first, I think we should all agree that right wing media covers stuff that advances the right wing and left wing media covers stuff that advances the left wing. And they both hide the opposite if it harms their side. That's what I don't agree that. right now. I do not agree That's to that. I do not agree to that one bit. And media analysis consistently shows media is much harder on Democrats because so-called mainstream media tries. They at least try to show some even handedness. Right wing media does nothing but propaganda for the Republican Party. So it's not a parallel. And most people most people watch Fox News. Right. So Fox News is much more highly viewed than MSNBC or CNN. So to Matt's point, the Republicans have a much better propaganda machine. And, when it and, come- and look at and let me just say, look at what Fox has done for President Trump over the years. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you watch if it's a political story. I'm not talking news coverage. I actually think CNN now that Shepard Smith has gone from Fox, who is my favorite breaking news anchor ever. I thought he did it best. Um, but since then. CNN, when it comes to non-political breaking news like the war in Ukraine, is absolutely the best resource, I think, television-wise, to watch. Um, But when it comes to straight-up political news, Fox News is a wing of Donald Trump's administration and now potential campaign. They absolutely are. And if you look at CNN covering the same kind of news, they are the absolute wing of the anti-Trump Democratic Party. And that is on political news. And I think most people can see it and they choose which to watch. I can't watch either when it comes to political news. Personally, I wait for the evening news on traditional broadcast network. Um, But I I think it's unfortunate that, that everyone has become so pocketed into their politics. And with Fox, it's not even Republicanism, it's Trumpism, which is different and odd and also Russian-esque. Um, you know, on the Biden, st- on the Hunter Biden stuff, I don't know what he did that's illegal or not illegal. I think the dude is shady. Um, but I just want to go on record saying the one thing I don't fault him for is nepotism. I am a huge fan of nepotism. I believe in nepotism. I think it's natural. If my dad could get me a job on a board and say, you don't actually have to show up, but because I'm your dad, they're going to pay a million dollars a year. I would take that job and I would smile and feel absolutely no regrets. So of all the things I think Hunter Biden and Joe Biden can be criticized for, the nepotism and the money you make from it, I am perfectly okay with. 
that was awesome. I mean, you just went full Gordon Gecko on like greed is good. Greed works. That's spectacular. Nepotism <laughs> is good. That's how thank the God works. for greed. <laughs> hey, I, I do like I do like you injecting a note of realism into this, which I think really is the point, right? It's like there's just there was just so much thirst. And there was a great analysis of this from Philip Bump on WashingtonPost.com about, hey, folks, let's just remember the context here of the Hunter Biden story. Not only this ridiculous, like it came to a blind man in Delaware type provenance of this laptop, but also how much the Republican Party was being helped and Donald Trump specifically by Russia and what an obvious looking Russian disinformation campaign this appeared to be. I'm just saying I do not fault the mainstream media for not reporting on this more. And I do not fault Twitter for saying, yeah, we're just not going to allow this to get amplified on social media by disingenuous bad actors from the Republican side. All that being said, let's just quickly get back to this week in insurrection for a second. I, I rattled off three nominees. Uh, we're, and believe me, we're going to get to Academy Awards type awards in, in, in just a second because there's something to talk about there, obviously. But like, it, OK, we have, we have three three entries here. We have Ginny Thomas running around texting the White House chief of staff saying, please, by any means necessary, Let's just keep Trump in office. You've got a federal judge for the first time in American history saying a sitting president mo most likely committed crimes. And then you've got Ted Cruz, it's come to light, having much more of a behind the scenes role than we knew about fueling the insurrection. Turns out he's for decades now, he's been besties with John Eastman. Uh, Paul, would you like to select a winner, a, a, a non-slapping winner of you know, what's the most outstanding achievement in this week in insurrection? Uh, I think it has to be the federal judge's opinion, um, because a f opinion by a federal judge carries um, weight beyond the beyond, beyond the obvious. Um, Ted Cruz, obvious. Ginny Thomas, obvious. I mean, you know, Clarence Thomas was the only justice who voted against releasing uh, the presidential papers in the archives. Uh, his wife uh, played a major role in texting Mark Meadows uh, to try to get uh, the coup going. Uh, pretty obvious. Those people have been kind of um, crazy outliers on the political spectrum for a long time, and nobody's ever made any secret of it. The fact that Ginny is married to Clarence, uh, you know, okay. So sh conflict of interest, any standard conflict of interest policy, by the way, includes spouses, family, um, et cetera. So, so that, that's pretty obvious. He's been a terrible, awful justice. He still is a terrible, awful justice. And his wife is an insurrectionist. Big surprise. Ted Cruz, no big surprise. Um, you know, sta standard issue, Ted Cruz, trying to play a big part in the January 6th with John Eastman, even, by the way, Ted Cruz agreeing to uh, with President Trump, hey, if we can get this to the Supreme Court, will you argue it? Ted Cruz says, sure, if we can get there. So that, you know, leading the cabal of crazies on the right in who were elected representatives, uh, no big, no big whoop. The Judge Carter, however, 
um, said uh, in no uncertain terms, in an, uh, the kind of opinion that is rare in American jurisprudence, uh, the kind of opinion that will stand, I think, for a long time as a watershed in uh, what courts can do to uphold democracy. He pointed out that Eastman, uh, the lawyer Eastman, uh, who who refused to turn over certain emails to the committee, um, uh, and the and the uh, lawyers for the committee argued crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege. That's how this came to a decision. He pointed out that they, Eastman and Trump, had launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. Their campaign was a coup in search of a legal theory. If the plan had worked, it would have permanently ended the peaceful transition of power, undermining American democracy and the Constitution. If the country does not commit to investigating and pursuing accountability for those responsible. The court fears January 6th will repeat itself. He then basically said, yeah, 10 of these emails uh, shouldn't go public, but 101 of the 111 emails should. Be basically found by civil a civil standard, more likely than not, more probably than not, that Trump had committed crimes. This is a big deal because... Merrick Garland and the Justice Department have been notably silent. Uh, the far left, Daily Coast, uh, the alternate, uh, the blogs on the left have been going ballistic for weeks about Merrick Garland's relative silence about whether he's willing to do anything at the DOJ about Trump. You now have a federal court um, setting the stage um, I think it puts pressure on Merrick Garland. I think it is an impartial, independent judicial body reviewing the evidence that the January 6th committee has and finding by um, a, a standard that is a, an important legal standard, more probably than not, um, crimes were committed. It is not, it doesn't, he didn't raise it to the criminal standard because he said, we're not a criminal court um, and uh, that's not my job. But what he did do was, was say what everybody's been thinking for a long time, but nobody has said it um, in such a clear public and independent way. Um, he can't, I mean, the Repub I don't know what the Republicans will say. What he he's a he he's a Democratic judge. He's one of those liberal judges. Who knows what they'll say? But he's a federal judge sworn to independence in reviewing this evidence. This is important stuff. You know, part of me just wants to move on. Um, I mean, it's intriguing the stuff that comes out as you put it the week in insurrection news. And there is something new every week. You know, the Jenny Thomas stuff, I don't know why spouses do things that could damage the reputation or livelihoods of their spouse. I just, but they're allowed to. She's allowed to get in politics, even though her husband is a Supreme Court justice. Uh, I, I don't think one should. You know, when I worked campaigns back in the day, um, I assure you my husband would not go out and criticize my candidate that I was working for. It's just, it's disrespectful and I don't know why they do it. As for the rest of it, Look, the judge's ruling was very severe, but I have to be honest. I, I think we are now at a point when it comes to President Trump himself that we have to move on. I do not think the pro former president with any information out now should be prosecuted, not because he did or didn't do anything illegal, but because the country needs to heal. 
It is over. He lost. I don't think he's running in 2024. I believe they're continuing it to ensure that he cannot. Um, But I think we really have to move on at this point. Paul was suggesting, you know, we really didn't learn a lot from the revelation that Ted Cruz was doing a heck of a lot more than we previously knew about to fuel the insurrection, other than what we already knew, which is that Ted Cruz has an eminently punchable face. Speaking of having a punchable face, we've got to talk about the Academy Awards. I know, I know, by the time this goes to air, this will have happened, uh, what, like almost 48 hours ago and people have have had their chance to weigh in, but the story does continue to get a lot of comments. Alicia, you were posting about this on Facebook and you started off, I would say a conflagration of commentary uh, among, among your Facebook besties. I, there was a pretty wide circle of, uh, of commenters. And I thought it was kind of emblematic of the reaction that's been happening around America. So what was your reaction and what did you take away from your highly viral Facebook post? Um, I have a lot of Facebook friends that are toxically masculine is what I take away (laughs) Um, who are like, Hey, I'd stand up and punch someone if they insulted my wife. Uh, I don't know. It was pretty split. But what I think of, I think the Smiths are weird people. I've always thought they were weird people. I think they've raised weird people and they are such Hollywood elite that they don't understand normal behavior. Um, You know, one of the best posters on my comment and my response was Davis Nanzo, former prosecutor in New Hampshire. And he said that Chris Rock was assaulted and that Will Smith should be prosecuted and Chris Rock doesn't have to file. That millions of people witnessed the assault and that that's what the LAPD should do. I agree. I think, number one, comedians are comedians. And all this uproar of, oh, but it was a joke about her medical condition. How many comedians joke about erectile dysfunction? I don't see the world going up in arms over that. I mean, that's just, they make fun of stuff. Uh, Kudos Ricky Gervaisi, who I think is hilarious, uh, who tweeted out, I think it was via Twitter, a clip of him with the office, the UK office, where he was making jokes about alopecia. Look, what is comedy? Making fun of other people. That is comedy. And it's funny. And we're not allowed to do it anymore. You can't do it based on, you know, anything. You can't do it based on hair loss or or gender or socioeconomic status or hair color. I mean, you can't do it on anything. It's ridiculous. It was a joke. And I did not know that Jada Pinkett Weirdo Smith, I didn't know she had alopecia. Why would I know that? Why would Chris Rock know that? She had a shaved head. She looked like G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane was pretty smoking hot. That's kind of a compliment. And for Will Smith to get up and go B-slap Chris Rock over it was childish, ridiculous, and he should be prosecuted like you or I would. Paul. I have to agree with Alicia that uh, that w- I, I promised on Facebook that the, the comment that stood out most to me would be called out on the air. And Alicia, you've now done that. That was the right comment to call out. So, Paul, you're a former prosecutor. If this were landing on your desk and you had to make the decision to prosecute or not prosecute, would you be prosecuting Will Smith right now? Uh, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, well, that's it, why I asked it. We're on the radio. Yeah, man. yeah well, so it was an un. Uh, it was an, um, an unpermitted touching, um, a non-consensual touching. Well, this touching. just got weird. <laughs> Where are we okay. Where are we? Wait, that's, that's, hold that's on. An ass- you turn. You turn. So, yeah. So, so is there grounds? Sure. Uh, as a matter of prosecutorial discretion with a bunch of, of entertainment industry uh, folks and who knows what. And by the way, uh, Will Smith just apologized to uh, to Chris Rock for it. You know, look, the, the, the joke was in bad taste because 
actually people do know about the medical condition. I think making fun of people over medical conditions, especially in a public way, is a dumb, dumb thing to do. And it's stupid. But 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 hitting somebody is is really dumb and really stupid. Use your words, people. Um, you know, I mean, it's like it's like use your words, people. Um, it's it, it, it's bad behavior that shouldn't be rewarded. Should it be prosecuted in a in dis, in a prosecutorial discretion? I would say no. I wouldn't prosecute that. But it's really bad. But I do want to point out. I had a conversation with my two very politically correct and adept millennial children uh, this past weekend about it. And they said, there are all kinds of issues here that white people don't appreciate and can't appreciate uh, that have to do with all kinds of issues that black Americans deal with um, in terms of relationships of husband and wife, in terms of um, uh, defense of family, in terms of all kinds of issues that they brought up that I, as a white person, do not appreciate. So after this conversation- Could you expound on that? I'm trying to figure out how this became racial. Um, uh, you had two, uh, you had an incident between two black men, um, one of whom was defending uh, his wife. Um, or he perceived that he was defending his wife's honor. And they, none of us are black. None of us um, uh, understand all the dynamics that may have gone into this that were particular to uh, African-Americans um, and cultural issues. So um, I won't, I mean, they're much more, they were much more eloquent than I can be. What I was left with a sense of unease about being a, a, a white man talking about what had happened as if I understood it or could um, condemn it uh, without appreciating what they saw as cultural issues. So a black man can punch a black man in defense of his black no, wife. No, 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 no. Because I'm my not, husband's Greek, and I assure you, yeah, the whole defense of wife culture thing is pretty yeah, big there too. I get it. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I'm just. I'm. I'm really. I'm reporting that from the highly politically correct millennials who are my children, there were issues which we as white people aren't appreciating. So that's I, that's you know that's probably true, and um for people who don't know Paul's kids, they're actually quite brilliant young people um, who I respect a great deal. They're probably right that there are issues that white folks don't get. And I respect that. And I agree with it. At the same time, I think the distinction here is what Chris Rock did was in bad taste. What Will Smith did was against the law. Doing something offensive that, that may enrage someone it, there. I mean, look, I, I actually, I don't want to, <laughs> you, there, there, there are some legal ramifications to that, but insulting someone with words through comedy is not against the law. Standing up and striking someone is against the law. And I hear Alicia's point that as a legal matter, we can't, we can't suddenly say, well, the law doesn't really apply here because we don't understand the cultural issues involved. 
the law is 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 blind. The law is supposed to be equal justice under the law for everybody. And in my mind, I, I mean, I defer to you, Paul, and your prosecutorial experience. Maybe a prosecutor would look at this and say, I, under my discretion, will not prosecute this because it's not worthwhile. Fine. But I mean, look, we just learned in New York that the prosecutors there apply the usual practical standard of we're only going to pursue cases, i.e. against Donald Trump for his rampant lying on his taxes. We're only going to pursue cases that we are sure we can win. I am pretty sure this is a case witnessed by millions of people on video that a prosecutor could win. And you know what? What kind of a message does it send if you can just get up and strike someone with impunity? And I would just kind of question from a racial justice standpoint that you, you, if if this were not rich folks who were Hollywood stars doing this at the Academy Awards, if this were a case of simple assault happening in a bar, you know, on the street, in front of someone's house, it should be prosecuted. In my mind, it should be prosecuted. But with that, I do want to talk about an issue with actual more real world import than Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. And that was Biden's nine word gaffe. And I'm going to a little bit air quoted here. I'm not trying to say it wasn't a gaffe. It certainly was a misspeaking on his part. But what I want to question with this group is, was this an actual blunder with deep consequences? Is it is it really a meaningful gaffe on the level that some in the media are making it out to be? Or is this much more a case of the media looking for a story and losing its mind in search of that story? Alicia, I'd like to start with you. The only mistake Joe Biden made here is allowing his talking heads to walk it back. I mean, the quote was, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Who doesn't agree with that statement? You know, I've spoken before on this show about how when Joe Biden was getting was elected, he, to me, was more palpable than other Democratic presidents who could get elected because there was something in him that was Americana, that was real, that was pure. Um, and I've complained that he stepped away from the Joe Biden that, while I didn't vote for him, I found palatable as a Democrat in the Oval Office. That Joe Biden that made that comment was the Joe Biden I was referring to. Good for him. He said what he felt at that moment in time, and it is something that the world, world is feeling right now. The fact that he had more courage to actually say it than anyone else isn't his problem. And it's not the media's problem. They want to make something out of it. Go ahead. I champion behind it. I think Joe Biden should stand by his words and the people who are walking him back and, you know, telling him to soften should step aside because those are the words of a leader of the free world. Kudos, Joe Biden. Boom. Paul Hodes. I don't think he was making policy. I think he was talking about how he felt. And to me, it was like, well, that's a pretty obvious thing. Everybody agrees. Um, Vladimir Putin doesn't agree, but everybody else does. Um, and uh, I don't think it was was, poli was making policy. All his, all his people had to say was, this wasn't policy. This is how the president feels. End of story and not gone any further. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I don't I don't I don't I don't count it as a gaffe. Um, was it unscripted? Yes. Is it really how he feels? Yes. Is it how the world feels? Yes. So go, Joe, you go, Joe, Joe Biden, my president, Joe Biden. 
You know, I actually, I, I have to say, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised by both of your reactions to this because I actually, in kind of setting up this question, I sort of thought I was going to be alone on this one <laughs> when, I, when I was fixing to say, this feels like the media sort of intentionally losing its mind, like, you know, and, and kind of grandstanding a little bit about like, oh, oh my gosh, Joe Biden has undone his months of good work and his leadership. And he's, you know, and he's setting us on the brink of, you know, and now Russia is, is going to be emboldened and they're going to think that we're forcing regime change. And you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, I mean, to, to quote the philosopher Joe Biden, come on, man, what are we talking about here? And then I'm getting like texts from people who are like, wow, this is as bad as Trump and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. You've absolutely got to be kidding me. Wasn't it five minutes ago that Lindsey Graham was saying the same thing? I'm not saying that a U.S. senator is the same thing as the U.S. president, but I, I, I got to think that deep down, what American isn't watching this, watching the scenes coming out of Ukraine and saying in their, at their dinner tables, exactly what our president just said, which is how can this person continue to lead Russia? How can, how can we continue to abide this? How can his own people sort of stand for it? So, wow. Um, okay. I thought this was going to be quite a debate. I, I don't, I don't see any further comments, any further comments on this one, or are we, are we kind of putting it in the dustbin and moving on? We I mean, I, I would support hiring Jason Bourne to go fulfill Biden's wishes personally. <laughs> but- okay. Well, um, I, I, I guess that will, that will put that one to bed with that comment from our panelist uh, Rambo. Uh, so with that, I do want to, I do want to move on to an interview <laughs> that Paul and I did yesterday um, with Jason Resign. It was really uh, an outstanding episode. I mean, this sounds self-congratulatory. It's outstanding in the sense of, I felt very privileged, very honored to be able to talk to him. And I would just urge people to go into the Beyond Politics podcast feed and check out that interview. If that name is ringing a bell for you and you can't quite place it, he is the Washington Post Tehran correspondent who was imprisoned, held hostage, let's not mince words here, held hostage by the government of Iran in 2014 for a year and a half through 2015, basically so that Iran could gain leverage in their negotiations against the United States. And the episode was about a current American hostage, Ahmad Sharkey and his family, and the film that Jason and his uh, co-producer, Kate Woodsum, have put together for the Washington Post called Bring Them Home, which highlights the struggles of the Sharkey family. I just want to remind people, this is an American citizen. This is an American who is being held on trumped up charges in a prison, in solitary confinement for extended periods in Iran for absolutely no reason than for the Iranian government to be able to exert some leverage in negotiations with the United States. But he is not alone. There are more than 40 Americans currently being held, again, I'm not going to mince words here, hostage overseas by despotic foreign governments who are using them as pawns in their geopolitical machinations. I'm using a lot of $100 words there. They are holding Americans hostage in order to try and get something out of our government. And it's pretty despicable. And it's something we just don't talk about enough. Paul, what stood out most to you 
from that conversation, which again, I, I would just urge our listeners to go check out on pod. You know what? I, I was struck by uh, Jason Rezaizen's Rezaian, uh, resolve. Um, I know that that's kind of an alliteration, Rezaizen's resolve, but, but it, his resolve in taking up this cause as a journalist and doing whatever he can to, uh, along with Kate Woodson, bring this matter into the American consciousness. It is uh, imperative that the American government do more. Um, they believe there are tools that could be used that collective action by uh, democracies working together could uh, do more to release people who are being held, because in addition to Shargi, who's being held, there are citizens from numbers of different countries being held by re repressive regimes around the world. It's a it's a terrible uh, it's a terrible situation. It is um, shameful, and for people for humans to be pawns in this geopolitical game is um, is tragic. Um, so I was struck by both his in intensity, but also the uh, calmness with which he dealt with this situation um, in terms of discussing what could be done and what efforts they were making, he and Kate Woodson, to bring this matter to light. Uh, because it's not, it's just not in our consciousness. We forget about it. Uh, and so does the government, it seems, often forget about it. You know, it, it kind of paired in an interesting way to me with some news that came out over the weekend that Israel was holding its highest level and open uh, meeting and negotiations with four Gulf state foreign ministers uh, over the weekend on Sunday. And there were a few things that kind of came out of that to me. First of all, because we spend a lot of time on this show dumping on former President Trump, richly deserved, by the way, and at times it can make it seem that we are nothing but blinded by our own partisan views of the world. I want to legitimately give some credit to former President Trump's administration for two things. First of all, his administration did good work when it came to trying to help hostages held overseas. I want to repeat that. They did some good work there. Second of all, the Abraham Accords and the advancement of normalized relations between Israel and other Gulf states is a positive development. And we're beginning to see more and more fruit come of that effort. And I want to give credit to his administration for getting something positive done. And you're beginning to see some of the benefits here. And one of the interesting touch points with the Jason Rezaian, Kate Woodson interview is that one of the things that's changing is that Israel and these Arab Gulf states have found some, some alignment and common ground. This has long been in the background, but it's, it's kind of coming to the surface now because they're so worried about hedging against the threat from Iran. And so I, I don't know, Alicia, did you did you have a reaction to to that, especially because this is something that is, you know, sort of sort of some credit to the Trump administration? Well, it is. I mean, you know, the U.S. has been trying to broker deals in that part of the world with Israel and its Arab 
neighbors for decades now. Um, but this summit itself, the Negev summit, uh, seemed to be very fruitful. They're saying that this may be something that happens every year. And I think it goes down to the old saying of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? They are united in opposition uh, to Iran and what Iran could do. So, you know, any movement in that way, I think is good. I certainly think the Trump administration worked on relations with Israel and to assist its allies. Uh, and I you know, hope the Biden administration is continuing it. It looks like they are. We were part of the summit. Uh, so any peace that can come in that region would be wonderful. And this certainly is a step in the right direction. Paul, as we look to try to build up this kind of growing, I don't want to call it a detente, that's another $100 word, but coordination, <laughs> um, you know, perhaps um, all being on the same side among Israel and these Gulf states in alignment against Iran. We're also at the same time trying to revive the Iran nuclear deal. And we're dealing with the fact that there are Americans being held hostage in Iran right now. How would you navigate this as the U.S.? What's sort of the order of priority here? Are we, are we sort of trying to follow a strategy of um, all of the above, putting pressure on by building up alliances in, in the Gulf states and with Israel, while also trying to get the Iran deal done. What's sort of the, the path forward? Because you're a longtime Israel and, and Gulf situation watcher, and you were involved as a member of Congress. Um, the strategy, if it is can be called a strategy, of supporting the new coalition uh, of Israel and other Gulf states um, is in very interesting. Number one, it's, it's, it is, as Alicia said, a good sign. It's good for peace in the Middle East. Um, it's good for our foreign policy generally in the Middle East, but it's also a quieter approach to putting pre uh, pressure on Iran than bellicose bluster uh, or sanctions, um, it 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 serves the purpose of creating some pressure in the arena without um, having to actively be the actor that's doing it. That's always it's always good, um, and it in in some ways it it resonates with Biden's approach to what he's been doing with Russia and Ukraine in terms of uh, allowing others to take some lead on the uh, presence of the coalition. Um, so I, I think that could be effective. Um, on a human scale, freeing hostages is, is a huge priority. On a geopolitical scale, uh, reasserting, re reframing and re re redoing the Iranian nuclear deal is really important, uh, both for peace in the Middle East and um, for the for the world in terms of what it, it you know, slowing down uh, the nuclear capability of a of a rogue regime. You know, I, the only comment I would add to that is it is interesting how politics, domestic politics has intervened both in the U.S. and in Israel in terms of this process of trying to contain Iran and try and disincentivize and punish their bad behavior, because what you saw was this strange alliance between Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump on trying to politicize and partisanize the Iran nuclear deal, which 
by and large, most experts felt was a step in the right direction, that it set back Iran's nuclear program, that it increased the ability of, of the U.S. to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions. And it, it seemed to be a positive forward step. But what you saw in that sort of 2015, 2016 timeframe was it became a political hot potato in both domestic Israeli and domestic U.S. politics. And that set the entire enterprise back. And once again, it's like we're reliving where we were five years ago. We're, we're trying to get the deal going. We're trying to get Iran to tamp itself down. And we're trying to get American hostages back. So with that, I do urge people to check out that episode of Beyond Politics. And we will see everyone back on the Balance of Power Roundtable next week. <laughs>